Today we begin the sixth chapter. This is the middle chapter in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is that powerful, life-changing sermon that Jesus preached to a group of people that were gathered on a hillside in Galilee. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Matthew contain this wonderful sermon. And here we find these principles that are laid down in this particular section uh, that contain definitions of theology and the practical outworking of that theology for kingdom citizens. This is truly a sermon of of great theological content, and especially we've seen that in chapter 5 as we've uh, gone through that part of Jesus' teachings and the explanations of the content that we find in chapter 5 are scattered throughout the apostles' teachings in the rest of the New Testament. Now, if you'll look at the apostles, or the epistles of Paul, rather, you'll, you'll find that Paul's teachings on justification by faith alone find their basis in things that Jesus says right here in this sermon. Uh, we spent a lot of time dealing with the theology of chapter 5, which explodes this underlying premise of all religions that are apart from Christianity. And that underlying premise is basically this, that it is possible to be right with God by doing good works. Or essentially, it's the belief that people can earn their way into heaven. And even each of, uh, or much of Christianity is wrong about this because anybody who teaches, any church that teaches anything other than faith alone through grace alone for our salvation is teaching something that is not according to the Bible. Now, for example, the Roman Catholic Catechism teaches that if you believe that you are justified by your faith alone, their catechism says that you are anathema, and that means that you are cursed for preaching such a thing. But nothing could be clearer in chapter 5 concerning the fallacy of this argument because Jesus has given us six examples there that deal with hopelessness of salvation Uh, by depending upon any kinds of a works or sacramental system. If anyone could be saved by their works, then surely the people that we're reading about here in the Sermon on the Mount, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have been saved. If anybody could be, if anybody could be saved by the things that they did, these people would be the ones because they were always concerned and their whole religion was wrapped up in external acts of righteousness. It was nearly impossible for anyone to exceed the works of righteousness that they had done because they were better at this than anyone. And yet Jesus said, if you're going to be righteous with God, then your righteousness must exceed their works. And how far must it exceed what they did? Well, he says it has to go all the way to perfection. If you're going to be saved under such a system as that, you have to go all the way to perfection. You have to keep God's law perfectly in every detail because that's what God demands, nothing short of perfection. And so in chapter 5, we find Jesus' theological exposition of God's law. And he teaches us there that we cannot be righteous by keeping the law simply because there's none of us that can keep it perfectly. Now, this section of the Sermon on the Mount was designed to show us the true intent of God's law, and it was to expose our sinfulness to the very point that we would realize that the only way that we could be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the underlying principle of the Apostle Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. 
So now then we get into chapter 6 and many of you are familiar with this chapter because it contains the Lord's Prayer. Now we prefer to call it the model prayer because Jesus intended this to be a teaching tool. It was not something that he intended to be his own personal prayer or something that was to be repeated as an act of worship, but it was simply something to teach us a lesson about prayer. And so in this particular section, as we, as we move into chapter 6, we go on from the basic theology that was taught in chapter 5 into the practical application or the practical outworking of that theology. And what Jesus does here in the beginning of chapter 6 is to give us illustrations about the right practice in worship. There are three illustrations that are given here in verses 1 down through 18 of right religious practice. Now these particular areas have to do with with giving and with praying and with fasting. And all of our religion can actually be summed up into one of those three areas or our worship can all be summed up into that. Because our giving is how we worship God in relation to others. Our praying is how we worship God in relation to God. And what's represented by fasting is the personal devotion that we give to God. And so that is worship in relation to self. And what Jesus says then, that in all of your worship, whether it's your giving, whether it's your praying, it's your fasting and your personal devotion, all of that must be right. Now today we're going to take just kind of an overview of those topics and then in later sermons we're going to deal specifically with those three areas of worship. So the question this morning is this, is your worship right? Does your worship stem from right theology and does it end up in right practice? And that is essentially what we would call righteous religion. And so the intention here in this section is to root out hypocrisy in all three of those areas of worship. So we're going to look at the beginning verses of the three illustrations that Jesus gave. And we're going to consider the subject today, righteous religion. Now if you'd stand with me please as we read God's word. We're going to read uh, verse number 1, verse number 5, and verse number 16 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says in verse number 1, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Then verse number 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And then verse number 16. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for those who have come to hear your word preached today. I ask you, Lord, that you'd open our hearts to the word and help us to understand in a better way what you expect from us in our worship. And we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In verse number 1, Jesus says, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. 
Now that verse is the heading for this particular section. It runs all the way down through verse number 18. And to understand the first four verses of chapter 6, we have to understand what this little word alms means. Now there are many people that read the Bible and read particularly the King James Version of the Bible and they don't always understand what the words mean. And so they look at that word alms and they don't understand it. Well, I can give you the definition of it, but the problem is it doesn't really solve all of the difficulties of understanding the statement that Jesus makes in verse number 1. Alms is something that is usually related to our giving. And so we speak of people doing alms. And that really means things like that you would give to the poor. Now I think that we could probably extend that in Jesus' teachings. And we could say that our tithes and our offerings that we give to the church, those could also be considered under alms. And it would refer to then... Uh, all of the giving practices that we have, that all of our tithes and our offerings, Jesus would be teaching that we're not to do those things. We're not to give those things in order to be seen of men. Now, that is basically the meaning of the word alms, but it really doesn't solve the problem of what Jesus is speaking about in verse number 1. Now, if you don't have a King James Version today, some of you may be reading something else, I don't know. And you'll find in many Bible versions that they make a distinction between alms in verse number 1 and alms in verse number 2. And so, in the first verse, they broaden the context of this. And they say that this word alms actually means righteousness. And so, what Jesus is saying here is, take heed that you don't do your righteousness, meaning all of the acts of religious worship that you do, take heed that you don't do any of those to be seen of men. Now, you may have a, uh, in your King James Version, a sender reference column, and it may reference this word, it's alms in verse number 1, as righteousness. And so, uh, then, if that's the case, and if that's what uh, Jesus means by the word alms in verse number 1, then what he's doing here is giving us just a general principle. He's looking at an overall principle as he heads up this section of verse number 1 down through verse number 18, and he's simply telling us that we have to root out all of our hypocrisy in things that we do for God. That we're not to do things for God in order that people may applaud us, that we might be seen of men, but all of our works are to be done to the glory of God. Now in the next three messages, we're going to break down the three illustrations that Jesus gives. And next week, I'm going to speak on righteous religion in giving. Following that, we're going to speak on righteous religion in praying. And then also, in the third message, righteous religion in in, uh, personal devotion. And so there's a difference then between verse number 1 and verse number 2 when it speaks of alms. Alms would be the general principle in verse number 1. And then in verse number 2, it would be the specific act of that of giving. So we're going to start with this today. We're looking at the general principle, the overall principle of this, which is our acts of righteousness. What Jesus is doing here is explaining to us how that right theology has bearing on your religious life. And if your theology is wrong, then the practical outworking of that theology will also be wrong. And that simply means the reasons why that you do what you do when it comes to things that you do for God. If you don't have the right theology, then the reasons why you do what you do is going to be wrong. Now, what Jesus did in chapter 5 was to bring the people face-to-face with the consequences of wrong interpretation of Scripture. 
Scribes and the Pharisees had taught the people a self-righteous religious system, and it appeared on the outside to be a very high standard of morality. But overall, it was actually substandard to what God required, and so it did not produce in them, it didn't produce in them the kind of morality and the kind of worship that God demands. And so we see that in their system, hatred and anger was not an uncommon thing for them. In God's system, though, hatred and anger are equivalent to murder. In their system, they could divorce their wives and they could have evil lust in their hearts. And yet they could appear on the outside that they were actually living by a high moral standard. But in God's system, he said that lust is the very same as adultery. And so really that's immorality of the very highest degree. In their system, they could have excuses for their lies. But in God's system, he said, you can have no excuse for your lying because your righteous character is to be equal to that of God. And since God is 100% truth all the time, anything that you say that falls short of 100% truth is actually a substandard morality. In their system, they could hate their enemies. Because as you remember, they'd misinterpreted the word neighbor. They gave it the wrong meaning. And so when God says to love your neighbor, they had interpreted that to mean the people that were just like them. When in reality, the standard was that you are to love even your enemies because your neighbor could very well be your worst enemy. And so time after time, there were all of these wrong interpretations and wrong interpretations of God's word had led them into wrong practice in in their morality and in their worship. Now, the examples that Jesus gave in chapter 5 are just the tip of the iceberg for the scribes and the Pharisees because the wrong religion that they had showed up in all of their practice. Now, I want to sum up all of this into two statements that I want to make today. The first one is that the mover for right actions is right doctrine. Always the mover for our right actions is the right doctrine. Now, the wrong doctrine, which is equivalent to wrong theology, is never going to move you into a system of righteous acts that are done for righteous reasons. You see, the wrong doctrine did not keep these people from being murderers. It actually made murderers out of them. The wrong doctrine did not make them uh, chaste and pure. It actually made them adulterers. And the wrong doctrine did not make them honest and trustworthy. Instead, it made them liars. The wrong doctrine did not make them lovers of God. It made them lovers of self. And so instead of keeping the Ten Commandments like they claimed that they were doing, they were guilty of God's commandments in every point. They didn't love God with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. And that made them offenders of the first four of God's Ten Commandments. And they didn't love their neighbors as themselves. And so that made them offenders of the last six of God's commandments. And so what they had done, they had gone down the wrong path. And no matter how far that they traveled on that path, they kept going and going and going and traveling the wrong path. They were never going to meet up with God. Their acts of righteousness could not be acts that were acceptable to God because they were fostered by the wrong doctrine. And it didn't produce in them the kind of character that was required for kingdom citizens. 
Now, maybe you're not getting all this that I'm saying so far, so let me try to break it down a little bit for you. If you wonder why at Berean Baptist Church that we are very particular about our doctrine and the reason why we preach doctrine over and over and over again is because it comes down to this. Without the truth of God's Word, if I don't give you the truth of what God's Word says, then you'll never have the right way of salvation. No matter how long that I preach, no matter how much that I tell you, your hearts and your minds will be forever blinded to the gospel of Christ. And what will happen is that you will never meet God. And the only way that you ever will meet him is if you meet him at the judgment. And when you meet him there, he'll forever condemn you to the fires of hell. Now there is the real problem with this self-righteous religion, the scribes and Pharisees. The path that they were going down and the path that they were leading people to was a path of judgment and it had no good outcome. And so Jesus made a statement about their false doctrine. He says in Matthew chapter 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye come past sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. That is a direct reference to their false religious teachers. Wrong doctrine taught by wrong teachers leads people into hell. Now, you may have thought that the difference in doctrines between the different churches is really insignificant. That it really doesn't matter at all. And I hear it all the time. There are some people who say, well, let's agree to disagree. And we can lock arms together and we can go merrily on our way because it really doesn't matter after all. Sometimes we hear the same things put this way. Let's don't argue about doctrine. Let's don't get into that. Let's be unified. Unity, that's the key. All of us need to be unified in our faith because after all, what are we doing? We're all working for the same place. And I would suggest to you that there are many churches and there are many religions that are all working for the same place. They're all employees of Satan. They're working for the same place. And what they're doing is they go out there and they preach the word that they're preaching. They're making their disciples and they're making them more the children of hell than even they are. Now, there are two remarks that I'd like to make concerning that. I'm working for Christ, and I'm not working for anybody else. I'm working for his kingdom. And secondly, I'm not actually working to get there. Because I can't work to get there. There's nothing I can do to work to get there. And that's because the work has already been done. The work has already been done by Jesus Christ. And when he was hanging on that cross, he lifted up his eyes to God the Father, and in agony he cried out to him, It is finished. And if it's finished, there's nothing left for me to do. What am I going to do if God has finished it all? You see, I can't do anything. The work is finished. So I can't keep sacraments to get to heaven. I can't do righteous acts in order to get into heaven. The only reason I'm going there is because of what Christ has done and what he did alone. So faith alone, in Christ alone, that's the mover. So right doctrine is going to get to me there. And right doctrine says Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. How many times have I told you that we have the name Baptist out on that sign out there because the doctrine matters? And I don't claim to be anything other than just an historical Baptist. I'm preaching what our forefathers preached all the way back to the time of Jesus and the apostles. But you know what I hear? I hear some people say, well, you don't really need that name. 
Why don't you just drop the name Baptist altogether and you can just be a Christian? Let's just all be called Christians. Well, there's really nothing wrong with the name Christian. I mean, it's a good biblical name. It was given to the disciples and there was nothing wrong with that at all. But let me ask you something. What happens when you visit many churches in our area? There's nothing wrong with the word Christian, but there is certainly something wrong with what they've done in the name of Christianity. And there's something wrong with what they're calling Christianity today. Because you can go into all of these churches and you can find that there is no standard there anymore. There's nothing there about holy living. There are no doctrines that are being taught in the church today that are intolerant of sin. And the buzzword among churches today is we must be tolerant. Let's don't preach against anybody's lifestyle. And you know the argument that they use? Jesus loves everybody. Jesus loves sinners, so we don't need to talk about what they do. Well, we notice something about Jesus. If you only take a half a second to analyze what Jesus taught, that Jesus was the most intolerant person on the planet. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there's nobody who comes to the Father but by me. Now, if you analyze that statement, what Jesus was saying is that it doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what religion you have, unless you believe in me, the all-exclusive Savior, unless you believe in me and receive me as your Savior, you're not going to heaven. And I don't care who you are, where you are, where you live. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're not going to heaven. And so he ruled out every other religion on the planet with just one statement. Any person across the whole world that does not receive Jesus as the prophet, the priest, and the king, and hence the all-sufficient exclusive Savior, will perish in the fires of hell. Now, religiously, folks, that is the most intolerant statement that anybody could ever make. And it won't fit on the bumper stickers of many smiley-faced Christians today. You can't get it all on there. But he went even further than this because we noted at the end of chapter 5, he said, you must be perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now let me ask you, what is Jesus doing there? He's getting down to lifestyle. He's getting down to exactly who you are and what you are and what you do. And now we ask a question, another one. Was Jesus tolerant of aberrant lifestyles? Well, according to many people, there is no such thing as an aberrant lifestyle. Everything is normal. Normal is whatever you are. If it's normal for you, then that's all that counts. And so, there's nothing that's really classified as being too far out there. Just any way that you want to go, anything want you to do that you want to do, that's all right. There's nothing too far out there. Now, it's passing strange that these people will throw in these little quotes from Jesus here and there, and they use it as their authority many times for their perverted lifestyles. Now, it's strange because if anything goes, folks, you can throw out Matthew chapter 5. You can just throw out what Jesus said before this because if anything goes, there's no point in what Jesus said in chapter 5. There he was attacking the very religious leaders and the religious establishment. They thought they were morally pure. They thought that they were pristine. They were going their own way. They thought they were keeping the finest details of the law. And you know what the outcome of all that they did? It's in verse or chapter number 6 because he says that they are hypocrites. 
In verse number 2, he says, you are hypocrites. In verse number 5, he calls them hypocrites. In verse number 16, he calls them hypocrites. In all of their religious life, in their worship, their giving, their praying, their personal devotion, they were hypocrites. Now, does that sound like Jesus was tolerant? In the verse that we read a moment ago from Matthew 23, verse 15, he said, hypocrisy is the very thing that sends people into hell. And when Jesus says hypocrites, he's directly referring to the religious leaders who were teaching not a loose morality. And that's something that you really need to understand. The scribes and the Pharisees weren't teaching a loose morality. They taught what they thought was a very strict morality. That's what it appeared to be. And when Jesus judged them, and he talked about how you haven't kept God's standard of the law, and you're keeping a strict morality, then how in the world do you think he's going to treat people who defy Old Testament law? Jesus forcibly upheld God's law. Don't think for a moment that that Jesus' love, that his love for anyone will ever come at the expense of God's justice. If there was anybody who was going to keep the law, the person who was going to do it was Jesus. Because he said in Matthew 5, 17, that he had not come to destroy the law, he came to fulfill it. And so if you want to know why we preach doctrine, why we relentlessly pursue this, if you want to know why that we open our Bibles every service that we come into, which many churches don't even do today, if you want to know why we have a Bible, why we bring it to church, why we go down the books of the Bible, book by book, and we take it chapter by chapter, and we do it verse by verse, here's the very reason. That's because right doctrine and right religion is the only thing that's going to lead us into right practice in our worship. Right practice leads us right into the presence of the Father. But the popular method today is to abandon all of the doctrine. Let's take the purpose-driven approach and let's see what the unregenerate people out there in our neighborhoods would like to see in the church. And so let's structure the worship that we have here according to what pleases the people out there. And so we'll bring in the rock bands and we'll bring in all these different styles of worship and we'll have the bright lights and we'll have the entertainment and we'll make it a fun time for everybody. And that's what we'll call worship. Now that is a novel approach, a great approach, many people think, but folks, it is dead wrong. There's a definitive comment that Jesus makes about all, or the Word of God makes about all this jumbled up mess that Jesus talks about religion and about worship. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Isaiah chapter 1. This is in the Old Testament, and when Jesus preached, he used the Old Testament because that's all that there was. It was foundational for everything that we find in New Testament teaching. And folks, there are people who want to throw it out today and say you don't need it, but we do. Paul said things that are written in the Old Testament are given for our learning and for our admonition. They are examples for us. Now look at Isaiah chapter 1, and we're going to start reading beginning with verse number 10. I want you to notice the way that this begins. Isaiah 1 verse number 10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Now, those of you that have ever read the Bible, do you think or do you know whether Isaiah was speaking to the rulers of Sodom and was he speaking to the people of Gomorrah? The answer to the question is no. Isaiah was speaking the words of God to the people of Jerusalem. And when he uses Sodom and Gomorrah, that is a barb against their pretended religiosity. 
And what are Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, they're simply the wickedest, worst religious and social system that you could ever think of. Now, he goes on in verse 11, and he says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Now, there, that shows us that these people were continuing to worship what they thought was worship, and they brought in everything that they thought that they were required to bring in. So they're making all of their sacrifices. The priests still require them to come. Then he goes on in verse 13, "...bring no more vain oblations." Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood." Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now I want you to notice again, particularly verse number 16, wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Now there is God's command about worship. If you're going to come before him, if you're going to be in his presence, then you have got to put away your evil. You have got to make yourself, you've got to make yourself clean. You must come before him with repentance of your sin. You must come to him with a clean heart. And if you come in any other way, you cannot worship God. Now, do you find anything here in this where it says, well, let's bring evil into the church. Let's bring in all these other things that people are doing. Let's substitute that for the worship of God. Let's bring it all in here. And let's just be tolerant of what everybody does. Let's be tolerant of all these lifestyles that are out there. And friends, the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in this scripture is very telling. We are to strive to rid ourselves of evil. It's not to have a part in our worship. And we're never to make God's love an excuse for wide open tolerance. And so we will not abandon righteous doctrine. We will not substitute vain oblations and pretended worship and call that the truth of God's word. Acts of righteousness are not acts of God's righteousness unless they meet God's standard. Now, what we can't do, we can't disjoint chapter 5 from chapter 6. Originally, there were no chapter divisions in the Bible. This is all one long sermon. And the righteous standard that God sets in chapter 5 flows all the way down to the practice of our worship in chapter 6. And the right doctrine, the right theology will always put us into right practice in our worship. Now, let me state it simply for you again, in case you're still not getting what I'm saying today. You can go out here, and you can see what people are doing in the churches. And you can see the kind of things that they call worship. And all the things that are going on there that are pleasing to men and filling up their worship time. What causes it? Go back to the very root of the problem, and what is it? It's their theology, folks. 
They teach the wrong theology, the wrong things about God, the wrong things about how people are saved and righteous in the eyes of God, and it ends up in wrong worship. So don't worry about the worship so much in the beginning. Worry about how they got there and stay away from the false doctrine. Now, let's go on here. The mover for right action is right doctrine. And secondly, we look at this. The motivation for right actions is the right design. Pay attention to me closely. This is very important for us. He says, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest alms, do not sound the trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now, we're going to look at one part of this statement. Next week, we're going to get back to the reward that God gives for acts of righteousness, and particularly we'll be in the area of giving next week. But I want us to look here at the contrast between works that are done to be seen of men and works that are done for the glory of God. Now, it may be, or it seems like, as you read this, that Jesus has involved himself with a contradiction. In his very own sermon, it looks like he has a contradiction. You know, I often worry about contradictions when I preach. Maybe not so much in the very same sermon, but when I'm preaching through the book of Revelation, for instance, on Sunday nights, there is so much imagery there. There, there is so much symbolism there. There's so many nuances of meaning in the book of Revelation that as I preach on that week after week after week, I'm very concerned that what I said in the end is going to match up with what I said in the beginning. I don't want to contradict myself. And so I may worry about that. Well, here, it looks like Jesus has contradicted himself right in his very own sermon. Now, let me show you how. If you go back to chapter 5, verse number 16. Now, remember, he said, don't do works of righteousness to be seen of men. But look what he says in chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light... So shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let them see your good works. Now, one place he says, let them see your good works. And then over here in another place, in, in, in chapter 6, verse number 1, he says, don't let them see your good works. Now, that's a contradiction, isn't it? So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to show or are we not supposed to show? Well, the key to resolving the conflict is in the motivation. In Matthew 6, 1 and 2, we find wrong motivation. And in 5, 16, Matthew 5, 16, we find right motivation. The wrong motivation is that we might receive the glory of men. And the right motivation is that we do all for the glory of God. And so if your design is to glorify God, then the motivation of all yourself, of all your acts of righteousness would be right. Now, think very carefully with me on this because I'm trying to make here a subtle differentiation between design and motive. And they appear to have the same meaning in this context, but they really don't have the same meaning. God's design for all of our works is his own glory, and our motivation to do those works is also for God's glory. But the design has to do with the end of the work. Where does it end up? And the motivation refers to the means by which we reach that end. So God has given us good works, and we do these good works that they may redound to the glory of God. And if you think that your salvation is for any other purpose than this, 
that your salvation is to produce good works that redound to the glory of God, if it is anything else, then you have the wrong motivations and you have the wrong design. Now, Paul states the design for us in Ephesians 2, verse number 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus. That's referring to the new birth. We are new creatures in Christ by salvation. And the purpose of our salvation is good works that glorify our Father who is in heaven. Now, as plainly as the Scriptures teach that truth, rarely is salvation taught in those terms. Now, we've had the Bible around for all of these many centuries. People have been taught over and over again how that salvation comes to us, and millions of people have been saved because of the gospel of Christ. But in our modern methods of evangelism, which is the way that we present the gospel today, the purpose of God's salvation has been dethroned. And what has been put into its place is just another form of self-glorification. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Most of you have probably heard of something called the Four Spiritual Laws. Campus Crusade for Christ puts out a little pamphlet which they call the Four Spiritual Laws. And this is a presentation that's given over and over again on thousands of campuses across the United States and is used by other people as well in gospel presentations. Let me read to you their Four Spiritual Laws. Law number one. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Law number two, sin has separated you from God so that you cannot experience this wonderful plan. Law number three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin, and through him you can experience God's love and plan for your life. Law number four, we must receive Christ as Savior and Lord, and then we can experience God's love and plan for our lives. Sounds good, doesn't it? But there's one glaring omission in the presentation. Where does it ever tell us or explain to us what God's plan for your life is? Nowhere does it tell us why God saves us. In the end of the presentation, there are some more scriptures that refer to the joy of life, refers to the promise of eternal life. It refers to this great adventure that you're now on because you've been saved. And you notice something about it? Everything in the presentation is geared towards you. It is your life, it is your experience, it's your adventure, it's your promise of heaven. And not one time does it ever say or explain to anyone that God's purpose in saving you is to glorify Him. What we have here is self-glorification. Salvation is meant to satisfy us. And the grand design of God's salvation is me instead of God. And that is the method that's been used thousands upon thousands of thousands of times all across the United States and all across the world in every gospel presentation. Now let me ask you, is there any, is there any wonder why after such presentations that there is denial of the faith? 
Do we ever wonder why there's pride and selfishness in churches? Is it any wonder that there are churches who end up in fights over position and leadership and there's jealousy and there's envy in just about every area of church service and ministry? And you know why it is? Because people have been taught the wrong design for their salvation. If everything is about me and getting what I want and this wonderful plan that God has for my life and the great adventure that I'm going on and it all centers in me, then what am I going to do with the practical outworking of my worship? I'm going to center it in me. And so if you do something that I don't like, I'm going to be angry about that. If I don't have the position that you have in the church, I'm going to be upset about that. I'll be jealous of you. I'll be envious. I'll do all of these things because the design for my worship, the design for my salvation is totally wrong. But when that is centered in Jesus Christ, and we understand that our salvation is to glorify God and not self, then we put all of these other things aside. And then we end up not only with right theology, but it translates into the right practice of our worship. Now this kind of self-satisfied religion is the very thing that Jesus refutes on the Sermon on the Mount. In, the very, in that first part, in Matthew chapter 5, he gives us and he lays down the theological maxims. You cannot be righteous by your own works. In God's eyes, you are helpless in your sins. You will never reach his standard of perfection. And God's law was given to make that abundantly clear to you. And so because you can't do it for yourself, Christ came to do it for you. He came to live a perfect life. He kept all of God's laws. And by faith in him, the goodness and the righteousness of Christ can be given to you. And because Christ did all of this for you, and you could do nothing for yourself, even the faith that you have in God is his gift, what do you have to glory in? Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now you see, if God has done all for you, if he has given all for you, if he has brought you to himself, who should receive the glory? What grand design for your life, what wonderful purpose for your life could there be other than this, than to give God the glory forever and ever? For what you are in your life and what you will be in the life to come, who is to be glorified? Not me, not self, but God Almighty himself. That is the saving purpose of God. God did not save you for you. God saved you for him. Now, folks, that is why there has to be a change in our morality. That's why there has to be a change in our lifestyle. That's why we're going to end up something different after we're saved than we were before we were saved because nothing will substitute for the perfection of God. It's not in us. It must be in Jesus Christ, and it all must redound to the glory of God. And if you are not different, if you can worship in a way that's not pleasing to God and you think that everything's all right and there's no change in your life that has taken place because of your faith in Christ, you have not got the central issue here of why God saves anybody. It's for his glory. And if his glory is only going to work when God changes a sinner into something that can be used for him. And he will not use, to use the Apostle Paul's words, dirty vessels. He only uses those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and are living in that faith. 
Now, when you understand this, when you get the right understanding of it all, you're not going to toot your horn. See, you're not going to be, like Jesus says here, sounding a trumpet before you. You're not going to toot your horn. You're not going to stick your thumbs in your vest and hold out your chest and say, look what I did. Look at my works of righteousness. You know what you'll say? You'll say, look what Christ did. Look what Christ did. Now, if you translate the theology of chapter 5 into the practicality of chapter 6, this is what you always come up with. You will worship rightly. The scribes and the Pharisees could never get there because their theology was substandard. And consequently, their worship was substandard. It was unacceptable then as it was 700 years ago when Isaiah complained about it and when he spoke to the people. And friends, it will not work today either. Acts of righteousness are not real acts of righteousness unless they are done with the right motivation. And if we are motivated to do our acts because of the glory of God, if that is our design, then we will end up with righteous religion. If God's glory is our purpose, we end up with righteous religion. Now, otherwise, it's a sham. It may please you, and it may please other men, but it doesn't please God. And what God is looking for in us today is a higher standard in our theology. You can't just pass it off and say doctrine doesn't matter. And you can say it doesn't, we don't care what other churches teach. We don't want to be upset and say anything about what anybody else teaches because the doctrine doesn't matter. Folks, God is looking for a higher standard of theology than that. His word is truth and you can't stop short of the truth. And then God has a higher standard for our morality. There must be a change in your life and the way that you live. And God demands a higher standard in our worship. All this other junk out there is not going to cut it with God. It may, as I said, it may please men and they may enjoy what they're doing and they may love the entertainment. But folks, it does not please God. The Apostle John wrote, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now I have the last statement for your listening sheet. And I hope you know even what it is before I have you fill out. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. That is the grand purpose of God for your life. To God alone be the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to understand your word, to teach it in truth. May we never lay it aside. May we never say it's unimportant, that doctrine doesn't matter to us. Because, Lord, we want to be right in our practice. We want to be right in our worship. And we cannot get there unless we know the truth of your word. Lord, please, just open up our hearts to the truth. Speak to your people today. Help us to reaffirm our salvation in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we might... Be very concerned about this issue. Is our worship right? We want to be pleasing to you. And so I pray, Lord, for anyone here who is a Christian and has not been worshiping you correctly and has been looking to self, I just pray that you'd have them remove all of that and look for some place, some place where they can worship you, where they can do it in spirit and in truth. And then, Lord, for those who may be here and they're not saved, 
they haven't received you as Savior, there's one all-important fact that we gather from this, that the only thing that will ever get us into heaven is Jesus Christ. There is no work that we can do. There is no sacrament to keep. There is nothing that depends on us. It all depends on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Speak to your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.